Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have another excellent show for you today. But before we get into it, uh, Linz, what's on your mind? Fat Bear Week. Yes. It's over. It is. We have a winner. It's 128 Grazer. I love her. I commented on her as I saw her live reveal on the last episode at the end. Um, she looked great this year. And it's her first win, which I am really excited about. She beat second place 32 Chunk, who is also very large and a male bear. Uh, but she beat him by more than 85,000 votes, which is like a pretty big landslide. Because I think there were like a total of maybe a little over... 100,000 votes. Yeah, she she took him to the cleaners. I think it was I think it was like 85,000 or uh uh no, no, sorry. I I think it was like No, it was more than 100,000 votes. Like total. she got she got a little over 100,000 votes. Yeah, I think it I think it was like 120 something yeah. to like 40 something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um but since she won, I wanted to look up a little bit about her personality. I've been reading all the news articles about her and wanted to share uh, so she was a particularly defensive mother bear. She's been known to attack larger male bears to defend her cubs. And some larger bears will actively avoid her because of this behavior, which I just find very amusing. Like she's just dominant in all ways. So she raised and defended her cubs. Like her cubs are um, not with her anymore. She didn't have any spring cubs. Uh, so she spent this summer as a single empty nester bear just living her best life, fishing and eating salmon, and I guess just scaring the males. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also wanted to just share this tweet from the official Katmai National Park account that announced her win. Like this is this is just high art. The gutsy girl grounded the guy with a gut. Thirty-two chunk proved his prominent posterior was worthy of a whopping win, but in the end, chunk got grazered. Let's crown our queen that's thicker than a bowl of oatmeal, 128 Grazer. Well, congrats to her, although I must say, as a longtime 128 Grazer fan, and mm -hmm. you can check the tape on that, our first Fat Bear Week episode, what what was that, probably three or four years ago, uh, I came out in support of 128 Grazer, and... You know, so it it'll be like it'll be like if you were a Warriors fan in like 2013, and then suddenly they start winning, and people are like, "Hmm, yeah, I've I've always I've always been a fan of these cats." Like, no, you weren't. No, you weren't. You didn't you didn't suffer through the aughts and like the 90s and all of the dark times. And that's how I feel as a Grazer fan. Mm -hmm. I I think that there will be a lot of fair weather fans. Bandwagon. Oh yeah, like I I loved 128 Grazer this whole time. They don't know what it was like to journey through the wilderness over these last few years. Um, but ultimately, it's hard to get that upset because she won. But they all deserved it, you know. Like they all got so fat. This we're is, so happy for them. This is a I, I think a participation trophy in the very best sense of the word. In that, uh, at the end of the day, you have a whole national park full of fat bears, and uh, they need to be fat, so it's good. It's so good. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's get into the show in a second. But before, uh, just up top, let's do some quick plugs. Yes. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever, you're li wherever you listen to the show. Uh, if you're not enjoying the show, please just keep that to yourself. On today's episode, <laughs> we cover topics... <laughs> 
Thanks, Greg. On today's episode, we cover topics related to training programs, muscle growth, and nutrition plans. If you want personalized advice and ongoing support on topics like that, consider hiring a Stronger by Science coach. They can design a training and nutrition plan that's personalized for your goals and then provide one-on-one support to keep you on track, deal with any challenges and roadblocks that come up along the way. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. And that's where you can also submit like a short application. Um, I review all the applications and then we'll help you get matched with one of our excellent coaches. If you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source and support the podcast at the same time, buy from bulksupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD to get a 5% discount. And they have such good prices. I mean, they're already what, probably 30, 40% cheaper than buying from a non-wholesaler. So mm-hmm. that's that's effectively a 35, 45% discount. Yeah, if, if so you, cheap. If you think about it that way. <laughs> sure. Another great way to support our work is to try MacroFactor, our macro tracking and diet coaching app. Uh, we just released new widget features for your home and lock screen on MacroFactor, and they are killer. I wasn't a widget person before this. Like, I didn't understand um, why all of our users kept asking for widgets all the time. But now I have widgets like everywhere on my phone showing all my nutrient targets and my progress on both my home and lock screen. Uh, Overall, like we truly believe that this app is the best one out there for macro tracking. And we'd love if you give it a try and see for yourself. Use the code SBS during sign up and you'll get a 14 day free trial. You can download it from the App Store and Google Play or learn more at macrofactorapp.com. Absolutely. And if you would like to stay up to date with all of the research coming out that is relevant to strength and physique athletes and coaches, uh, you should check out the research review MASS, which stands for Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. Uh, you can learn more about that at massresearchreview.com. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out every month. There's also a very thick and extensive archive. Uh, and in fact, in answering one of the questions on today's show, I ref- I refer to one of my old mass articles. Um, so yeah, if you'd like to check out that article or anything else coming out, uh, you should check out mass. If you'd like to stay up to date with the general Stronger by Science cinematic universe, and in particular, the podcast, uh, you should join our Facebook group and subreddit. That's reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science and Stronger by Science community on Facebook. Um, specifically for Q&A episodes, uh, when we are putting out a call for questions, either generally or just on a particular topic, um, we will post reminders in, in the Facebook group. Uh, if it's going to be questions about a particular topic, that is where we will let people know. Um and yeah, it's uh, it's fun people, good times, uh, join the communities. And uh, if you would like to stay up to date on the content we're, pu- we're putting out, you should check out and subscribe to the Stronger by Science newsletter. Uh, and it's, it's good stuff. Like we're sharing informative stuff with you every other week. Um, it's not just a bunch of spam and promotions and trying to sell you shit. Like it is uh, almost exclusively just good, high quality content. Uh, so you can check that out at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or a link to do so will be in the show notes. And finally, uh, if you have questions that you would like us to answer on the podcast, record a voice clip, uh, 30 to 60 seconds, and email that to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. 
If it's a short question and it's under 30 seconds, that's totally fine. If it's over 60 seconds, we're not going to listen to it. So don't do that. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. So this is going to be an all Q&A episode. And if it goes well uh, and you guys keep submitting good questions, we may do more of these moving forward. Uh, thinking back about the history of the podcast, we used to do more Q&A episodes mm -hmm. and they went over well and people liked them. Uh, and we stopped doing them for some reason, which honestly, I don't even remember why. But it's it's fun to go back to, to that. Like it's it feels like feels like coming home <laughs> in in a way. Um, and also like just for kind of my own, I guess, insecurities. I enjoy Q&A episodes because like I'm like I'm always like reading and learning about stuff and I never know the extent to which my interests overlap with audience interests. Mm -hmm. And so like when we're coming up with with topics for the podcast on our own, you know, like sometimes we know something is going to be a smash. Like it's very timely, like like the aspartame episode, for instance, like that's what everyone was talking about. Like that that was a no-brainer. But other times I'm just like, hey, this is the thing I currently find interesting. Will other people find find it interesting? And like, yeah, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, so the thing with QA episodes is at minimum, I know at least four or five people will like the episode. Because <laughs> uh we're we're answering it's a their low questions. Bar. Yeah. Um and like I'm also just not on social media very much at all anymore um so yeah like i i genuinely don't know where the chatter is and like what people are talking about what they want to hear about yeah um so i i think like the q a format helps with that like if if there's something that people are talking about and you're you're interested in our take or what the research has to say about something um the the q a format is a good way to bring that to our attention because there's there's a pretty decent chance that we would just miss entire like swaths of discourse Definitely. otherwise especially because so much of the discourse is on tiktok now and neither one of us has spent any time on tiktok yeah no <laughs> i learn um, about tiktok trends through newsletters and other much older ways yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm on twitter so like yeah. i see tiktoks that like break containment and get posted on there right um and i hear people like reference them on podcasts but so so yeah like there there is just a lot mm -hmm. of discourse that we miss and so yeah if, if you want if you want to fill us in uh and say like hey people are talking about this what do you think um yeah we'd, yeah, we'd we love, love to that. address that on yeah. the show so um so yeah let's uh let's get right into it here is our first question for the day uh, macros, I get it. I understand what they are. I understand why you track them. But are macro targets expected or supposed to be hit squarely on the head? Or is it supposed to be a range? Is it okay to go a little under? Is it okay to go a little over? Should you aim for exactly the targets? Or what, what, what's, what's going on here? Can you help me out, please? Thank you. Yeah, so we hear this question a lot, mostly from people in the macro factor groups. Yes. Um, it's pretty common for people to recommend that you hit all of your macros squarely on the head, or if there is any allowance for there to be, for it to be pretty small, like, you know, within five to 10 grams. Um, but Greg, we've talked about this and it seems like if you're not a bodybuilder trying to get 
exotic levels of lean. It doesn't matter so much if you hit all your macros squarely on the head. Like maybe you focus on protein. Maybe you focus on overall calories. You try to get relatively close to your carbs and your fat, but it's definitely not something to stress or stress about, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. Um, and I actually addressed something, like not this exact question, but something quite related to it uh, in episode 103 of the podcast, which will uh, which will be linked in the show notes. Um, the segment title was Misapplications of Popular Weight Loss Advice. And so, yeah, like the, the idea that if you are tracking macros for the purpose of trying to lose weight, gain weight, manipulate body composition, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that you need to hit those numbers with extreme levels of precision. And if there's any wiggle room, like it's small, like, ah, you can maybe be five grams under like eight grams over on carbs, but like you need to be very, very close to that number. That is a recommendation that primarily derives from the bodybuilding community Mm -hmm. where I think that style of macro counting does make a lot of sense because essentially you are pursuing an extremely challenging goal. Like yeah. your your body... Your body does not want to be that lean. Yeah, no. Like when, when you're getting close to like 4 or 5% body fat, yeah. uh, your body is fighting you every step of the way. And so, you know, it, it might take a more um, precise approach to your, to your diet to, to be able to get that lean while maintaining as much muscle as possible. Um, you're also just dealing with thinner margins. Like for instance... There is a certain amount of fat that you need to consume to not wind up with hormonal issues, uh, uh, absorption issues with fat-soluble vitamins, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but also, you want to be able to still consume some carbs to fuel your your intense resistance training workouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're trying to get super lean and calories are super, super low, those two things can come in conflict, right? Like, uh, if your fat target is like, right at the bare physiological minimum you need to consume um it's bad to go under that by like 15 grams Mm because especially consistently because then you might run into problems but if you go over it by like 15 grams now suddenly your carb intake might go from like 100 grams a day to like 60 and then then you're not in good shape for your workouts yeah um so yeah like it it makes sense in that context but if you're not if you're not pursuing a goal that has you on super low calories, either trying to get super lean or trying to lose weight super fast, which we also typically wouldn't recommend, um, just that the, the physiological benefits of preci- of that level of precision largely go away. Yeah. And the other factor in play is that with bodybuilders, it's a very time-based goal. Like you need to be absolutely peeled on one particular day. And if you kind of get off course, like you, you're tracking your macros, you're doing pretty good, but like you go over from time to time, you're still losing weight. You're still making progress towards your goal for 99% of us. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you reach a state of being absolutely peeled four weeks after your show, well, guess what? You weren't peeled on the day of your show. And so like, that's like that, that's a negative outcome for a bodybuilder, but like a perfectly acceptable outcome for anyone else who's not planning on stepping on stage in a speedo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like for for most people, most of the time, I don't think you need to be all that precise. Uh, like you mentioned, if 
for most people, I don't even think you need to be that concerned with your carbon fat targets. Mm -hmm. Like unless you're pursuing some type of diet that has your fat intake very close to kind of the minimum level that you need to just sustain normal physiological function. Um, or unless like, yeah, you, you need to train really hard for whatever reason, but, yeah. but carbs are going to be super, super low. Like outside of those two considerations, I just don't think it matters very much. You know, mm -hmm. like if, if you have like 1500 total calories that are going to be devoted to fat and carbs and you go one third fat, two thirds carbs or two thirds fat, one third carbs, like whichever way you're going to be consuming plenty of fat. You're going to be consuming plenty of carbs for most goals. Like it'll be fine. Like you, you don't really even need to look at the fat and carb targets. Um, so yeah, just like eat enough protein, get your, get your calories close enough and you'll be in pretty good shape. Um, and then like, also as I, as I kind of alluded to, most people don't have goals that require a, a level of like total energy intake precision that would be required to get super peeled on a particular day. Mm -hmm. Like if you're trying to lose 10 pounds in 10 weeks or whatever, um, and yeah, like life happens or, or just like there are family get togethers and you want to eat more for a day or whatever. And instead of losing 10 pounds in 10 weeks, you lose 10 pounds in 13 weeks. It's like, who cares? You know, yeah. like you still have a lot of life to live. <laughs> and if it takes you an extra three weeks because you weren't like super precise with your, with your macro targets and like went over sometimes, yeah. like who cares? Like, yeah, you, that's like a you're trade still in off good Most shape. people are willing to make, I think, yeah. when, you, when you put it that way. And it just makes it... It just makes it a lot more sustainable. Definitely. Um, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to try to hit all my macros right on the head every day. Like I track all my food super precisely and have been doing so for years, but there's probably less than 10 times that I have hit all of my macros like square on the head. Yeah. Like it's just calories and protein and then carbs and fat just kind of fall where they are. Yeah, for sure. And, and also like... One of the things that we bring up from time to time is kind of the idea of uh, rigid versus flexible cognitive restraint. Right. And approaching, well, approaching most goals, but that would include diet goals from a posture of flexible cognitive restraint tends to result, it tends to lead to better results just period. Mm -hmm. um, but then also better maintenance of results over time. Definitely. Because like trying to... Like, like there, it kind of depends how you psychologically process it. If if you're approaching it from the perspective of like, ooh, this is a fun little challenge to try to hit all of my macro targets, and like, if I do, cool, give myself a little pat on the back. Right. If I don't, that's fine. Like, move on with life. Like, you genuinely don't care. Uh huh. Um, like that can be fine. Yeah. But a lot of people approach it more from like a rigid cognitive restraint perspective, mm -hmm. where it's like. Oh man, if I if I did go eleven grams over on my carbs today, uh, or I was like six grams under on my fat today, has been a failure. Yeah, that's um, so sad. <laughs> you no. kind of beat yourself up about yeah. it. You don't need to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. One, you don't need to. Like, it's not it's not serving functional ends for you mm -hmm. in all likelihood. Uh, and two, like, it does just make. It just makes everything less psychologically sustainable. Like right. dieting itself is a stressor. You don't need to make that stressor three times more stressful on a daily basis. Um, 
And like I said, in terms of sustainability and kind of maintaining results long term, most people aren't going to want to eat like that long term. And it's like if you're kind of dichotomizing how you view days, like if you're close enough, it's a success. If you're far enough away, like it's it's a failure. Um, you know, like it only like it doesn't take that long, like a week or two of still doing pretty good with your diet, but being uh, like missing your targets by like 15, 20 grams, which again, like who cares? Like that's, that's probably fine. You are probably still making progress towards your goals, but it, instead of looking at that and saying, oh, like I'm doing pretty good, but I could do better. Mm -hmm. If you look at that and say, man, I've really fucked up these last couple of weeks that can easily put you down the road of like losing self-confidence, losing self-efficacy. And like, even though you're doing pretty good in a general sense. Like the way you go about evaluating yourself from that posture of rigid cognitive restraint, like that can, that can lead to burnout and like giving up on your diet before you reach your goals in the first place. And certainly not sticking with that style of dieting for the months and years that it would take to actually sustain and maintain the results you, you do achieve. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all of which is to say, if you're a bodybuilder, Forget everything I just said. Like if you're if you're six weeks out from the show and you need to be yeah super peeled in six weeks, they like, know what they got to do. Like hit your fucking numbers. Yeah. Like that's it, it makes sense in that context. Yeah. But for just about anyone else, try to be within like ten eh, ish percent of your calorie target. Uh, try to try to meet whatever your protein number is. Just kind of let fat fat and carbs fall where they may, mm -hmm. and uh, that'll be fine. Like that's that is more than sufficient for most people most of the time yeah all right uh question number two hi greg hi Lindsay. uh with all the research we've seen in the past couple of years uh not correlating uh muscle size to muscle strength all that well uh how much in general would you say someone has to have uh, a certain amount of muscle to be able to lift a certain amount of weight and do you think that it comes down just to genetics and how much force a certain amount of muscle can put out to reach that level of strength? Or is it the same for everyone? Yeah, so there's a common belief that when you see two people with similar amounts of muscle and one of those people is stronger, that that difference all comes down to skill or like neuromuscular efficiency or efficiencies related to muscle origins and insertions like creating more favorable uh moment arms or whatever from what i understand those things are relevant but when you look at unskilled exercise and fiber type specifics and negate skill and that neuromuscular efficiency and difference in moment arms you still see pretty big differences in how much force can be produced so what's going on there greg yeah so uh just to start with i wrote an article about this topic in maybe like 2016 2017 thereabouts uh the title is size versus strength how important is muscle growth for strength gains uh that will be linked in the show notes and i also uh wrote a more recent article that that was published in mass and was a cover story so i believe we published that on stronger by science as well I yeah, we can try to dig that up. Yeah, yeah. I, I forget the title right off the top of my head, but we'll we'll find that and, and link it in the show notes as well. Um, but, but yeah, so like in general, the amount of muscle you have is 
certainly important for strength and being able to generate force. Mm-hmm. Um, and it like there, I think what uh, what the the listener was alluding to in their question is that in typically relatively short term studies that look at individual changes in muscle size versus individual changes in strength, Mm -hmm. there is often a relatively weak correlation between the amount of hypertrophy observed and the magnitude of strength gains observed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that leads some people to think that muscle growth and the amount of muscle you have is like virtually irrelevant for um, for creating force. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, like in addition to the article I alluded to, I was involved in uh, a bit of a a bit of a back and forth um, in I think I think JSCR on this topic uh, a while back, um, and I'll I'll link the perspective paper basically arguing that hypertrophy is irrelevant for strength and our response. I know we think it is pretty important. Uh, I'll link those in the show notes as well. All of which is to say there will be plenty of resources in the (laughs) show notes if you would like to dig into this topic uh, in more detail. But, um, I mean, I think to start with, it is quite clear that the amount of muscle you have is very important for lifting heavy weights. Yeah. Um, I mean, like weight classes in powerlifting exist for a reason. Mm-hmm. Weight classes in weightlifting exist for a reason. Weight classes in strongman exist for a reason. Like yeah, it, there are no weight classes in the jungle, though. That is correct, uh, but there are in strength sports. Right, and the reason that those weight classes exist is guess what? Like bigger people with more muscle lift heavier weights, and so if you if you put someone who's four hundred pounds and someone who's one thirty in the same division, like the person who weighs four hundred is going to win, like mm-hmm. almost every time. Um. And so, yeah, like, obviously the amount of muscle you have is important. And I think the the relatively weak correlations that are sometimes observed in, again, like relatively short-term studies in the research, I think that's mostly just a result of the fact that, like, other things do contribute to gains in strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially if it's a study on untrained individuals, there will be increases in motor skill that are that are observed. Yeah. Um, there are going to be like structural changes within the muscle, um, like probably within the connective tissue surrounding the muscles that affect the efficiency of force transfer mm-hmm. from muscle fibers to the tendons. Very cool. Like and and those things occur and they're also like different between individuals. And so like you know, if you had two people where their muscle size increased by 10%, but one of them, for whatever reason, already had kind of like intramuscular connective tissue that was mm-hmm. really good at transferring force, and they were already like relatively good at whatever exercise you were testing, um, their strength might go up 10%. But if the other person who experienced a 10% increase in muscle growth, if they had like piss poor motor skills and like didn't have intramuscular connective tissue that was particularly well geared for transferring force, with that same 10% increase in muscle size, their one rep max, like bicep curl or whatever, might go up like 40-50%. Right. Um, even, even if in those two individuals, the like causal contribution of hypertrophy was identical, you could still wind up with like two very different changes in strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like I think that answers one part of that question. 
Uh, and then the other part was just kind of like variability in strength between individuals who do have similar amounts of muscle mass. Um, and so, yeah, like you mentioned um, in, in your answer to the question, like it is commonly perceived or like it, it's commonly believed um, kind of within the strength sports community that a lot of it does just come down to muscle origins and insertions or kind of like stated more technically uh, the the length of the internal moment arms that uh, relate to the muscles like if uh, if uh, like if your biceps were to insert like an inch further down your forearm you would be able to curl way more weight even if your biceps themselves were linear linearly contracting with the same amount of force mm -hmm. just because that internal moment arm would be longer and so you might say that that, that, that person has like efficient muscle insertions for the bicep curl. Um, so yeah, like a lot of people think that like motor skill, neuromuscular efficiency, muscle origins and insertions are like really the dominant or like only factors uh, explaining strength differences between individuals with similar amounts of muscle mass. And like those things are certainly relevant and are especially kind of motor skill, quote unquote, neuromuscular efficiency. That is particularly important when you're talking about more skilled tests of strength. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like it probably doesn't matter all that much for like a one, like a, a maximum force on an isometric knee extension. Right. But it probably does matter more for the deadlift. Yeah. It probably matters even more for the squat. Yeah. Probably like matters clean and jerk. even more yeah. for the clean and jerk and snatch. Yeah. Like as, as the like level of skillfulness of the strength test increases like yeah motor skill just how totally. good are you at the lift is right. going to matter more and more um and like certainly uh muscle origins and insertions can make a difference although uh they don't like they do differ between individuals but like generally not by a ton mm -hmm. um like if uh in in one of the articles linked in the show notes like i i include some citations for this but like if, for instance, you had uh, like quad insertions that were particularly good um, for like knee extension force, or you had quad insertions that are particularly bad for knee extension force, like that can make a difference. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're, we're talking about the difference between like being one standard de deviation above or one standard deviation below the mean. We're talking about like maybe a 20% difference mm -hmm. in joint torque. Which, which isn't nothing, but, mm -hmm. you know, you might see two people who have similar amounts of muscle mass and one of them lifts twice as much. Yeah. So that's, it's not like fully explaining those observations. Um, so yeah, like one of the other things alluded to in the question is just like, are there kind of like inherent differences in the amount of strength someone has or the amount of force their muscles can produce even when like ignoring and discounting all of that stuff? And yes, there is. So two concepts just to be aware of. Um, one is called specific tension. Mm -hmm. That is the amount of force a muscle fiber can produce relative to its cross-sectional area. And the same concept in whole muscle is called normalized muscle force. That is also just the amount of force a muscle can produce relative to its uh, uh, physiological cross-sectional area, which... That's a, that's a distinction that matters when you're talking about pinnate muscles, but like, ah, eh, whatever, like, just don't worry about it for now. But <laughs> it's basically the same concept as, as fiber specific tension. And 
I mean, what we see in the research is like there are pretty big differences in fiber specific tension and normalized muscle force between individuals. Mm. And the experimental models you would use to test that stuff do negate things like muscle origins and insertions, yeah. motor skill, neuromuscular efficiency. Um, with a single muscle fiber, like, of course, you're negating all of that stuff. Like, you you essentially, yeah. uh, like, string up a muscle fiber between two little force sensors. And then, you, like, you have it in a medium where you can, like, shock it to, like, force it to contract with maximum force. Um, so, yeah, like, you can you can measure that, like, very precisely. And obviously, like, motor skill and, like, muscle insert like none of that shit matters <laughs> when you're just getting zapped yeah when you when you're just like testing the the mechanical properties yeah. of a single muscle fiber and for normalized muscle force it's similar like you're you're still testing strength in vivo like in a living human mm -hmm. um but like you're measuring internal moment arms and like uh accounting for them mathematically like after you take the force measurements and you're taking those force measurements with like very very basic exercises where people without like neuromuscular diseases can like demonstrate their full strength like they can exert all of the force that they're capable of exerting and like some studies will even uh use like an additional kind of stimulus from an electrode to just like stimulate the motor nerve to like force it to contract yeah. as hard as possible so so yeah like in those studies, you're using experimental models that, um, you know, account or completely negate the effect of motor skill and muscle origins and insertions. And you still see, like, pretty big differences in specific tension and normalized muscle force between individuals. Um, so, yeah, like, it's it's hard to say kind of big picture why that is. Yeah. Like, maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's related to someone's, like, prior amount and type of activity hmm. i mean mechanistically like the the sort of little why rather than the big why like mechanistically it probably just has to do with uh how densely packed like sarcomeres and like myofibrils are mm -hmm. in a muscle fiber and kind of extrapolating up within the entire muscle like if if 40 percent of the space in a muscle is comprised of myofibrils versus 32 percent like the muscle that's 40% comprised of like actual protein contractile units will probably create more force per unit of cross-sectional area than the one that just has less actual contractile yeah, units. Yeah. Um, so like th that is probably most acute, most acutely the cause of those differences. But in terms of why that is like why you might have differences in uh, like myofibrillar protein concentration in uh in muscle tissue between individuals or even between muscles within an individual. I don't know. I mean, I do suspect a fair bit of it is genetic. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like you, you, you meet, you meet some people where it's just like, there's no reason you should be this strong, but you're just fucking strong. Um, I feel that way about you. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, like I, have historically had a lot of training partners that were like considerably more muscular than me and i was either as strong as or i was either as strong as them or stronger than most of them mm -hmm. um and so yeah like yeah yeah i mean what i what I mean, i'm thinking of when i say that is like the fact that you can not do a lift for six months 
And then the first day back in the gym, you're just as strong as you were. Yeah, or come back like 5% weaker or something. Yeah. But, but yeah, so I, I do think a lot of it is innate. And I think that a lot of really successful strength athletes who like probably do have a lot of motor skill and like yeah. their quote unquote neuromuscular efficiency is high. Like, like those things probably are true, but just their muscle tissue itself is just good muscle tissue for, for creating a lot of force. And is there any way to like increase in your, like the myofibrillar in um, your muscles? I don't know how to phrase this question. No, I, I know what you're asking. Okay. Um, beyond the basic answer of engage in resistance training. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't have anything for you. Okay. But yeah, uh, generally like fiber specific tension does increase with training. Yeah. But yeah, beyond just train, yeah. I, I, it's hard to say. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope that answers the question. It was an interesting answer. I liked it. Thank you. All right, uh, moving on. Question number three. Hi, both. I'm about to have my second kid, and I feel like my time for fitness is about to be constrained. So I'm wondering, what are the best sort of more minimal fitness routines? I'm currently following the SBS programs and doing three days of cardio, which doesn't seem sustainable for the next few months. Thanks for your time. Love the show. Bye. This is a good question, and I, I like it because we have a very specific resource that we can recommend. So we published an article on Stronger by Science um, by Hayden Pritchard and Pack. Not even going to try with that last name. Do you do you want to try our coach, Pack? Patroclus Andrelakis Korakakis. There we go. Thank yep. you. Um, but the article is called Effective Strength Training for the Time Poor. And I think that Hayden has really dug into a lot of the literature and has thought a lot about this for a really similar reason to um, why this listener is asking the question in that like he has kids and wants to figure out how to strength train in the way that is the most effective for uh, the amount of time that he has to, to dedicate to it right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give like some of the recommendations that were given in that article and we can link that in the show notes as well. And then we will uh, pass it over to Greg. Um, but Hayden and Pack recommend, um, for maintaining strength, focus on high intensity, very low volume approaches. So just a few heavy nine to nine and a half RPE singles across the training week. And I'll mention that this is like a, the specific thing that Pack does research on as well. So they're a really great duo for, for writing this content. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, few heavy nine to nine and a half RPE singles across the training week or significantly reduced training volumes by like 50%. Mm -hmm. um, those can be effective strategies for at least at least a couple months. Yeah. Um, so that's for maintaining strength. If you want to continue to improve strength, a slightly higher training dose is required. Um, but you can do that with just the addition of a couple of uh, back offsets in addition to the high intensity protocol, like the the couple heavy singles. Um, so try like one to five reps on the major lifts per week using RPEs from seven and a half to nine and a half. Um, or if singles and low rep sets are not your thing, try performing two to three sets of six to 12 reps per lift per week at like 70 to 85% 1RM and take those pretty close to failure. 
Um, just another consideration for increasing efficiency within each workout is the exercise selection. So the selection of any assistance or accessory exercises are a good chance to consider movements that target multiple muscle groups and that can give you a lot of bang for your buck. So there are a couple of ways to do that. You could do supersets um, to condense work into a shorter time period. So like performing two exercises back to back and then taking your between set rest or doing circuits um, like three or four exercises back to back shifting from one body part to the next or doing like every minute on the minute training drop sets or clusters might also work for you well. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there are a lot of options available to you. And uh, just kind of high level, one of one of the themes that Lindsay touched on is that there is a big difference between the amount of training you need to do to actually get stronger yeah. and the amount of training you need to do to sustain what you already have. Yeah. Um, and I think I discussed this quite a bit in an article a while back called A Guide to Detraining. I forget what the subtitle was, but uh, mm-hmm. we, we can find that and link it in the show notes. Um but yeah, like you, you don't have to do that much training to maintain what you already have, right. especially when it comes to strength and muscle mass. Uh, cardiovascular adaptations are like very volume dependent. So that's, that's another topic. But yeah, for strength, like um, there was a study from I think 2011 and I think the lead author was Bickle. Um, Just I, off the dome. I swear to God, I don't have that pulled up in front of me. Uh, and you can check the show notes to see if I was right or not. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like they, they had, uh, they had a group of younger subjects and a group of older subjects, I think trained for 12 weeks and then reduced their training volume for the next, I think 24 weeks. Like, I think it was a pretty long study. Um, and the, like the, the three conditions were, um, either stop training entirely if memory serves, uh, reduce training volume, um, to one third of your previous volume or reduce training volume to one ninth of your previous volume. And they found that for the younger adults, like people 20 to 35 years old, reducing your volume to one ninth of your previous volume was sufficient to maintain muscle mass and strength Mm -hmm. for, again, like a pretty good chunk of time. I think it was like 18 to 24 weeks, something like that, which is not identical to 10 years, but is suggestive that like, okay, that's that's enough to maintain what you have for quite a long time. Yes. Um, and with the older adults, reducing training volume to one third of previous volume was still sufficient for maintenance, although reducing to one ninth did start causing losses of muscle and strength in the older subjects who I do, think were- Do you remember the age? I think it was like 60 to 75. Okay. Um, yeah, one, one general- very unfortunate note is like middle-aged folks are very underrepresented in research. Like there's a lot of research on people who are theoretically 20 to 35. Like that's, that's how kind of like young adult is often uh, defined in the research. College kids. Yeah. It actually means like 20 (laughs) to 25. Like it's, it's the people who are the easiest to recruit. Yeah. Um, The the folks who need extra credit. Uh, And then there's uh, quite a bit of research on people who are 60 plus like, sarcopenia, osteoporosis, mm-hmm. like those are big public health concerns, a lot of research funding, a lot of research performed. 
if you're like 40 to 55 years old, like there's so little research yeah. for, for your demographic. So Well, they don't have time to participate in studies. Yeah, but but that is relevant because like that may be around sure. the type of people who are like dealing with young kids. Yes, of uh, course. More like the 40 than the Which 55. is why they can't participate in studies. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah, that that <laughs> that is probably an explanation. Yeah, when, when you have more family obligations... Go go into the lab for an hour and a half, three times a week for a training study may not uh, may not be as feasible. Yeah. Anyway, all of which is to say Mm -hmm. you can you can cut back a lot and maintain if you're interested in still trying to make gains and keep getting stronger and more muscular. It's going to depend a lot on how far along your journey you are already. Um like if you're if you're already in a place where it's kind of a coin flip whether you're going to hit PRs every 3 to 6 months or not and you know like things have really slowed down you might be you're you're at the stage in your career where you really have to fight for every inch there's a pretty decent chance that like a a lower like minimum volume protocol like like I understand the research says, oh yeah, like you can you can still do a pretty little amount and make gains. Like that that's what that's what PAX research was on. Yeah. Uh but there's also like not like the subjects in that study weren't folks who had been training for like 15 years mm-hmm. and who were like really kind of scraping their limits. And so I I kind of think that if that's you, yeah, like just just accept the maintenance life like yeah, you're you're gonna drive yourself crazy because like I really just don't think you're gonna be able to keep making robust gains on a that on a, a lower volume sense. protocol. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if, if you've only been training for six months or something like that, uh, yeah, you don't have to do much at all to keep making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all of that said, here is here is the recommendation that I've given for just like a very basic protocol anyone could do when this question has been asked on the show previously, because I I think this is the third time I've answered this exact question, but it's also maybe the most common question we get asked, like across all kind of Q&A mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's something people are interested in. And it may, like, oftentimes I'd be like, ah, like, don't be lazy, like, go check the archive. But you know, you already got a kid, second one's on the way. Maybe you don't have time to go check the archive, <laughs> yeah. which is why you're asking a question yeah. that's been answered before, um, which I, I totally get and and do not uh, resent at all. So yeah, like I, th- this is a question that I like us to answer probably at least once a year. Yeah, it, it's common ever- question. Yeah, it's evergreen. Like people want to know. So um, yeah, here here's like a very minimal uh, program that you can do. It will be hard, but it will be quick. And if you're still capable of making gains, it should be sufficient to keep making gains. So you're gonna you're gonna train two days a week. One day you're gonna do squat, bench press, and row. The other day you're going to do either deadlift or RDL. Uh, you're gonna do overhead press, and you're gonna do either pull ups or pull downs, depending on you know how strong you are. Can you do a fair number of pull ups already? For the core lift, squat, bench, deadlift, overhead press. Uh, you're going to start with a weight that you can do for about 15 reps. You're going to do two or three sets to failure-ish. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe leave a rep or two in the tank on the first set and really push it on the second set. Yeah. Uh, and next week, just go up 10 pounds for lower body lifts, go up five pounds for upper body lifts, 
and do it all over again. And week to week, your goal is to lose as few reps as possible. Like the number of total reps you can do will go down because the weights are getting heavier, but you're trying to stay as close to your performance, your total rep performance on the previous week as you can. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to repeat the process until you're down to doing about five reps on the first set. And then at that point, you just start over and you're, you're keeping a training journal, you're keeping a training log, you know what you did the last time you like attempted a weight, like the weight you started with that you could do for 15 reps before, uh, after you drop back to it, try to get like 17, 18, or like, if you got quite a bit stronger, you might get like 20, 21 and just basically repeat the 21 reps of deadlift. is terrible. Yeah, I mean, the first couple weeks of this program will be hard. That no, I have done this for squats true. before, and it was fucking brutal. I mean, you and you got strong. Right? I know. <laughs> Didn't you hit your all-time squat PR at the end of this program? Yep. It works. It's tough, but it works. Yeah. Um, But yeah, and, and I mean, for your main lifts, like between squat bench, deadlift, overhead press... You're only doing like two or three sets a week. So like yeah. you can you can get after it for two or three yes, sets. Yes, yeah. Uh, and then for the rows and pull-ups or pull-downs, you're just going to do three sets to failure-ish. Um, and just, just keep a training journal. You know how many total reps you got across those three sets last time. And you just, you just try to get one more rep if you can. Or at least try to match your performance from your last workout. Uh, and then once you can get more than... Depending how heavy you like to go for your back work, once you can get more than either 30 or 40 reps across those three sets, increase load. Mm -hmm. So uh, getting 30 reps across three sets, that might look like getting 12 reps on the first set, 10 on the second, eight on the third, something like that. So yeah, if, if you kind of prefer to train in the six to 12 rep range, go for the 30 total rep target. Uh, 40 total reps, that might look something more like I don't know, 15, 16 on the first set, 12-ish on the second. Oh, man. Mm, I got lost in the sauce. Maybe somewhere around 10 on the third, something like that. <laughs> Who knows, whatever. But yeah, like you, you'll be getting you'll be getting in kind of, you're, you'll be getting into the mid-teens on your first set. So yeah. if, if you prefer to train in kind of the uh, 15 to 16 down to like 10-ish rep range, go with the 40 total rep target. But yeah, just three sets to failure. Try to beat reps. Once you get 30 or 40 reps, go up. Mm -hmm. um, and like, that's good. Like that, it it will be tough, but you're doing a grand total of what? 2, 4, 6, 8, 11, 14. So 14 to 18 total training sets per week across those lifts. Like that's not much. You should be able to get in and out in like 30, 45 minutes tops, even counting warm-ups and uh, laying on the ground praying for death after that, your squat and deadlift sets on your first couple yeah. of weeks. Um, so yeah, like it's it's not going to take much time. It does it does work if you're short on time. Um, and if you wanted to toss in some accessories, like if you if you have closer to like an hour twice a week than like 30 minutes twice a week, uh, you could toss in some accessories if you wanted. Um, what I would probably recommend targeting with those would be something for your anterior core and hip flexors, um, just because they're not going to be trained much mm. with those lifts you're doing. So something like weighted leg raises would fit the bill there. Um, wouldn't it be a bad idea to do something for your calves? Wouldn't it be a bad idea to do something for your rear delts? And it may not be a terrible idea to do some like knee flexion based exercise for your hammies. And uh, yeah, you'll you'll be in good shape. Um 
the questioner also asked uh, or, or also mentioned that he's currently doing three cardio sessions per week as right. well. Yeah. I'm not the best person to ask about like the best and most time efficient cardio workouts. Um, although I will note that it is probably slightly different if you just kind of have like cardio performance aspirations versus like longevity. Yeah. In both cases, like if you want to have really, really excellent endurance or you want to get like great health benefits, like the the maximum possible health benefits from cardio, it is pretty dose dependent. Like you're, you're probably going to need to do quite a bit. Um, when it comes to longevity, um, we, we did a research spotlight on that uh, a while mm-hmm. back that will be linked in the show notes. And when it comes to performance, I mean, like, just just look at the mileage of any uh, elite marathoner and like, yeah, it, it takes a lot. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, shout outs to uh, Kelvin Kiptoom for breaking the like actual competition marathon record. What did he run? Two hours, 35 seconds or something like that? Yeah. Absolutely wild. Um, yeah. Mar- marathon is entering is entering a bizarre age. Like I, I, I think we're going to see sub two hours and like an actual race fairly soon, which is that's insane to me. That's inconceivable. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Truly inconceivable. That's like, uh, here, here's, here's something to do. Uh, dear listener, <laughs> get out on a track and just see over what distance you can match the world record marathon pace. So it's, I, I think it comes out to about a 17 second hundred meter, which like, I imagine a lot of people listening to this can can do, but it. I mean, that's relatively quick. Like mm-hmm. you know, world class is like sub ten, but like if you're in decent, decently good shape, but you're not like a trained sprinter, your hundred will probably be somewhere in the twelve, thirteen second range. So, and, and there are, I'm sure there are people listening to this who can't do a seventeen second hundred. Like that's like you're you're yeah. still scooting. Like it's relatively quick. Yeah. Um. 200, pretty similar. Like, if you're decently fast over 100, like, you can probably do a 34-second 200. Once you start getting out to 400, and, and you're... <laughs> so crazy. And you're looking at, what would that be? A one-minute, eight-second 400? Like, that's not... That's fast. I mean, yeah, like, that's that's not, like, elite, elite runner speed. But mm-hmm. if you're not trained for the 400, I wouldn't be surprised if half of the people listening to this I podcast... I not... Yeah, I I I'm positive I couldn't do the 800. I think I think that pays for a 400. Like I think that's where I would tap out. I think I would be. I think I could go very close to that. Right. And then imagine doing that for 26 miles. Yeah, like 800, like two minutes 16 seconds, and then like a a what four four and a half minute mile or so for 26.2 miles straight. What once you get up to the mile, like I. I would bet there are fewer than 10 people listening to this podcast that can throw down that mile time. And he's doing it for 26.2. That's wild. A god. A god among men. Yes. Anyway, all of which is to say his his mileage is crazy. Volume is very important. Going back to yes. the question about kind of minimum effective dose training. So if you're short on time, um, you can probably... like you could. If you're short on time, some sort of like high intensity interval training is probably your best bet Yeah. in terms of getting some aerobic benefits in the shortest period of time possible. Um, 
Although, just in general, doing more is necessary to, like, maximize longevity benefits. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's relatively common for, like, non-endurance athletes to get too enamored with high-intensity, like, shorter interval training. Because, like, in research on untrained individuals, like, it's very effective. Like, it, it is just as effective for improving, like, VO2 max or... Uh, like running times, uh, like like time trial performance. Um, it's similarly effective to considerably longer duration, lower moderate intensity training. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to get in like really, really good shape, the high intensity stuff is, I mean, I'm like massively oversimplifying this, but the high intensity stuff seems very important for like mitochondrial adaptations and just like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of low intensity training seems to be quite important for a lot of the cardiovascular adaptations like yeah. increased capillarization um like yeah just a, just a lot of those types of adaptations so like you will be missing out on that if you're only doing high intensity stuff but if your total cardio budget for the week is like 30 minutes you'll probably get more out of 30 minutes of high intensity training than 30 minutes of moderate intensity training and certainly more than 30 minutes of low intensity training. So that's, that's about as, as good of an answer as I can give for like a minimalist cardio routine. All right, moving on to question number four. Hey, Greg. Hey, Lindsay. Uh, my question for the Q and a is basically what are your thoughts on training to failure? There seems to be a lot of buzz recently, especially on TikTok and stuff, about just taking every set to absolute failure. I've also seen some stuff saying that maybe going to failure isn't actually as fatiguing as once previously thought, or you could just adapt to it over time. Um, so just wondering what your what your thoughts are. All right. Uh, thank you for the question. And uh, yeah, I, I have some thoughts on this, and I suspect that... I'll probably get into it more, hopefully, in the coming weeks to months. Um, I've been chatting with uh, Zach Robinson from Data Driven Strength about this. He was the lead author of the meta regression that I think has been driving a lot of the conversation on this topic and has been um, like largely contributing to the perception that you need to train to failure or it's like extra beneficial to train to failure. Um, so yeah, he, he invited me on their podcast to talk about it more. And I assume that will be a good and fruitful conversation. Uh, we don't have a recording date scheduled, so I have no idea when that would be coming out. But anyway, I'll, I'll try to give kind of a high level overview answer to this question here. But, uh, like I said, within the next few weeks to months, I suspect that, uh, there will be a better conversation that I will be involved in on this topic coming out. And we'll just see. Anyway, with that preamble out of the way, uh, the meta regression that I alluded to that I think is driving a lot of the conversation on this topic right now um, was recently pre-printed. The title is Exploring the Dose-Response Relationship Between Estimated Resistance Training Proximity to Failure, Strength Gain, and Muscle Hypertrophy, a series of meta regressions by Robinson and colleagues. Um, and so, yeah, this, uh, this meta regression, essentially what they did is they 
found all of the studies that tested the effects of training at at least two different proximities to failure Mm -hmm. um, with hypertrophy or strength outcomes and uh, ran a meta regression on it just to see kind of what that dose response relationship looks like. Like how much do you grow when you train two failure versus one rep from failure versus two, three, four, five, whatever. Um, and, And they looked at both strength and hypertrophy outcomes, but I strongly assume that this question was asking about hypertrophy outcomes because the strength meta regressions found that proximity to failure was effectively irrelevant um okay like i mean for shorter term studies where like not a huge amount of growth is going to occur yeah most of the strength gains are kind of like skill-based or or like maybe some of those like intramuscular connective tissue adaptations and so like yeah if you're doing five sets to failure or five sets, five reps from failure, but with the same relative intensity, like strength gains are pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Like that's, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I assume this question is mostly asking about hypertrophy. And what did they find for hypertrophy? So they found a few different things, but people are mostly only talking about one thing. Classic people. So they had the, the kind of like main model um, like the, the one that, that people are sharing on Instagram and I assume TikTok and wherever else. <laughs> Once again, we have no idea um, what's going on there. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm making assumptions about <laughs> what's going on on TikTok, but, uh, but yeah, like, so their, their main model, um, kind of shows the results of pooling all of the studies together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it found, uh, like a linear log fit regression line gave them the best fit, uh, which, results in kind of a how to describe this verbally basically like the the downward slope at lower proximities or at at closer proximities to failure is steeper and then it gradually flattens out as you get further from failure basically implying that the amount of hypertrophy you like miss out on when you stop one rep from Mm. failure versus going to failure is greater than the amount that you would miss out on by stopping two reps from failure instead of one which right. is greater than how much you would miss out on stopping 19 reps from failure rather than 18. I see. Essentially, like the marginal decrement gets smaller the further you get from failure, mm-hmm. uh, which you can flip that around and say, as you get closer to failure, each rep is increasingly important and yeah. therefore it is disproportionately beneficial to go all the way to failure. Uh-huh. So that was, I mean, like that that would be kind of the simple interpretation of the main model of this meta regression. Uh, And that is where I think most people's analysis of it ended. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are a few things to note uh, about the paper itself and some of the research surrounding the paper. Cool. So first thing is that in the... In the paper itself, it reports the main model, but it also reports um, like several sub-analyses. So does the way that the training dose was prescribed affect this relationship? And does the load you're training with affect this relationship? Um, And in particular, uh, the load you're training with did seem to make a pretty big difference. So, like, right next to the big main model that, like, everyone screenshots and talks about, there were these sub-analyses. And 
with especially like heavier loads, like things around 80% of one RM or above, um, like they ran the same uh, meta regression model uh, on that data and found like much, much smaller decreases in hypertrophy as you get further from failure. Mm -hmm. Which is to say like if you're, I don't know, if you're training with like 50% of one RM and you're going all the way to failure versus stopping five reps shy, like ah, maybe you're missing out on a lot by stopping five reps shy. But if you're training with like 80% of one RM and you go all the way to failure versus stopping two or three reps shy, you don't really seem to miss out on much by stopping two or three reps shy. Um, and like, I think that, I think that like one dynamic that, that like is, is difficult to like statistically parse and statistically account for. But I think like one of the dynamics at play is just the lighter studies and the studies that involved training really far from failure, which, which like with 85% 1RM loads, you can't train 20 reps from failure because you can't do 20 reps in the first place. But with like really light loads, you can train 20 reps from failure mm -hmm. and you tend to not grow very much. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there, and like most of the studies in this meta regression did have people training at least like reasonably heavy. Mm -hmm. And in most of the studies where people trained reasonably heavy, they tended to observe relatively robust hypertrophy. And so I think that when you put it all together in the pooled model, like that kind of dynamic might be in play where on the right side of the graph, where it's like you're training really far from failure, it's like light studies where people are training really far from failure and not growing much. So that kind of like pulls down on that end of the graph. Mm -hmm. And then you have like heavier studies where people are training closer to failure and growing quite a bit. Those are a lot of the results on the left side of the graph. And that kind of like pulls up on that end. So, so you wind Just up. makes it look more dramatic. Yeah. Like you wind up with a steeper slope for the meta regression right. line than you see when you split those things out. Hmm. When you kind of do a more apples to apples comparison and say, hey, what do we see when we just look at the heavy studies? What do we, what do we see when we just look at the moderate load studies? What do we see when we just look at the lighter load studies? Um, so yeah, like once you split it out by load, you don't see as dramatic of a drop off as you get further from failure. Um, so yeah, like that, that's the main thing, like the, the refutation of like the really, really strong takeaway of like, Hey, kind of regardless of context with all loads, you have to train to failure and you miss out on a ton. If you stop further from failure, like the sub analyses provided in the paper itself, uh, push back against that interpretation. Cause yeah, like once you split it out by load, like you don't see as steep of a slope anymore. Um, another thing just to note is that when you dig into the individual studies on this topic, like the individual papers that feed into the meta-analysis, one of the things that you observe is that going close to failure seems to make a larger difference for untrained lifters than trained lifters. Mm. Um, this was something that I that I wrote about previously as well. Mm -hmm. um, article title was Evidence is Lacking for Quote-Unquote Effective Reps. That will be linked in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, like most of the research that does find the largest effect for training to failure has been performed in untrained subjects. And in particular, like the strongest individual piece of evidence uh, comes from a study by Martorelli and colleagues, which was like untrained people doing bicep curls for a few weeks, which like 
do you necessarily want to generalize that to like strong folks doing deadlifts <laughs> for months and months? Like who knows? Maybe not. Um, but yeah, so like the uh, like when you're pooling together different loads people are training with and like different levels of training experience, um, like you can get kind of a, a particular pooled relationship that may not necessarily hold when you start splitting it out by intensity or by training status, um, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the second thing. Third thing, looking at kind of the, the reporting and the study itself, I haven't seen that many people bring up like the confidence intervals and prediction intervals that are on the chart itself. And like, yeah. now we're just getting into like stat shit territory, which I don't know. I, I think most people either aren't equipped to discuss or like don't want to discuss because they think it's boring, but mm -hmm. like it matters, right? And yes. the the confidence interval around kind of the main regression line is like reasonably broad. Kind yeah. of the, the bottom of the confidence interval at zero RIR is like basically the same as the top of the confidence interval at 22 RIR. So like you are seeing a general downward trend mm -hmm. of people growing less as they're training further from failure. But like, even when you're pooling all of these results, um, like the, like just the confidence interval itself does span like a broad enough range that you shouldn't be like super confident that it, that it is like the precise relationship that fits the current data best. Like it could be a step, it could be a shallower slope. It could be an even steeper slope. Like they're, there are a lot of possible, uh, like plausible relationships covered by the confidence interval. And then the prediction interval, which basically tells you like if another study was performed mm. at these different proximities to failure, what are the plausible uh, amounts of hypertrophy that might be observed in the study? Um, the prediction interval is fucking wide. Like it's, it's wide as shit. So like the kind of the, the centered... Uh, like predicted, like single point effect um, at zero reps in reserve. And, and these are like standardized effect sizes, like change in mean divided by pooled standard deviation, whatever. Um, is like a hedges G of like 0.45. And then the prediction interval spans from like negative 0.1 to like positive 1.1 or something like that. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's very wide. And as you get out to like really high reps in reserve, like the prediction interval is similarly wide such that like of the plausible outcomes that one might observe if another study was run looking at hypertrophy at different proximities to failure, um, you shouldn't be particularly surprised if people fail to grow when training one rep from failure or experience like 50% more hypertrophy than is observed when training to failure when training 10 reps from failure. Like th those are both like plausible outcomes within those prediction intervals. Um, and so, yeah, like it's, it's essentially, it provides evidence that training closer to failure, probably all else being equal does result in more hypertrophy when you equate all other factors. Mm -hmm. But, but it's like, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's not the type of thing to warrant as strong of takeaways as I think people are drawing from it. Like th yeah. they're saying like, oh yeah, for sure. Like there is a huge difference between training to failure versus stopping two reps shy. And like 
we can we can precisely state how large that difference is and it's pretty large like mm-hmm. no like you can't mm-hmm. uh oh and just kind of like getting into a much less technical and just kind of like petty observation <laughs> is like of the studies feeding into this meta regression the single largest effect observed like the the most like the largest amount of standardized hypertrophy observed in any of the studies occurred in a in a study where people were training like six reps from failure and the largest negative effect observed in any study was a study where people were training two reps from failure. So, like, mm-hmm. just kind of to further reiterate, like, prediction intervals really fucking wide. Yeah. And, like, there there are things that matter beyond, like, how close to failure you're training, which is one of the reason that, reasons that there is so much dispersal in these data and, therefore, why the prediction intervals are so wide. Um, and, yeah, I also think that the folks who are um like pushing a very very hard takeaways from a very naive interpretation of this meta regression essentially saying like oh yeah like like just look at these results this is the best research on the topic you you lose out on so much hypertrophy if you stop three reps from failure versus going all the way to failure i don't think the people pushing that uh like, like, the people who are willing to, like, literally interpret just the regression line at low reps in reserve, I don't think they would actually sign off on a literal and naive interpretation of even just, like, the entire regression line, mm-hmm. which is which is what they want to fall mm-hmm. back on. Mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, if you, if you went with that matter of interpretation, um, you would then also be signed up to kind of, like give your sign off on the idea that you will grow about half as much training six reps from failure as going all the way to failure just because like the standardized effect estimate for the regression line at six rir is basically half of what it is at zero rir and so like yeah you know if you're trying to grow as much as possible go all the way to failure but like Oh yeah, you'll grow half as much and you'll get you'll get the same gains, but it'll just take you a little bit longer if you train six reps from failure. Like, I don't think they would sign off on that interpretation. Mm-hmm. Or even more gallingly, the effect estimate like on the meta regression line at like 15 reps in reserve is like a third that at zero reps in reserve. And I don't see fucking anyone saying, oh yeah, take your 20 rep max do sets of five and that's going to get you a, a third as many gains as doing sets of 20 with the same load like i don't think anyone fucking says that no no uh, one believes that and so so it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too like if you're if you're going to make strong claims based on a naive literal interpretation of just the regression line not looking at the confidence intervals not looking yeah. at the sub analyses, not at looking have at the to prediction look at the whole line. Yeah. If if your if your interpretation of this meta is just that single meta regression line, mm-hmm. you better be willing to sign off on the whole fucking line. And I don't think I not don't, just not just a tiny little part of yeah, the line. I don't think people want to do that. They uh, don't want to do that. I think I mean I think a lot of it is uh like bias justification. Cause cause yeah. like the folks pushing that particular interpretation of this meta regression the hardest mm-hmm. are also the folks who popularized the so-called effective reps model mm-hmm. and also 
like so they're they're taking the bits of this meta regression that do seem to back up what they're saying like they want to say like oh yeah like you missed out on so much growth if you're not getting all five possible effective and, and for for listeners that don't know what that is it's the idea that that uh, mechanical tension is literally the only thing that matters for hypertrophy and as you get closer to failure mechanical tension within muscle fibers increases and only the last five reps before failure of a set give you enough mechanical tension to cause a hypertrophic stimulus. Right. So like a natural implication of that position is that zero hypertrophy should occur at more than five reps from failure. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I say I don't think they would sign off on the idea that you can get a third as much growth training with like 15 reps in reserve. Yeah. And also like... If you look beyond the single meta regression line and just look at the effect estimates from all of the studies feeding into this, like just look at the effect estimates of people training five or more with five or more reps in reserve. Mm -hmm. Most of them are positive. Mm -hmm. Like most of the studies where people do like quote unquote zero effective reps, they still grow. Yeah. So like it's bullshit, whatever. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so like they want to take just the very left side of the meta regression line where they're like, ooh, steep drop off as you start getting further from failure. This like validates our model Mm. Um, while paying attention to, while like ignoring literally everything else on the main figure, any of the sub analyses, uh, literally anything else. So I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Yes. So like that... That is just kind of my rant about it. Um, Anyway, all of which is to say, uh, I mean, I do think that in general, like training closer to failure will probably net you more growth than stopping further from failure. Mm -hmm. I think that the people pushing that idea the hardest and the loudest are dramatically overstating their case. And I don't think they're statistically savvy enough to understand the extent to which they're overstating their case. Um, And so, yeah, like I I do think in a vacuum, um, I I think you probably will achieve pretty similar levels of growth going all the way to failure versus stopping two or three reps shy. Mm -hmm. But I all like if I were a betting man and I were to say like, hey, 10 years from now when all of the re- like when we have way more research on this topic um do i think the point estimate going to failure versus two or three rep shy like which which one do i think will have like a slightly higher point estimate like of the two i do think that there's like a better than 50/50 chance that going to failure on a per set basis mm-hmm. probably does give you a little bit more growth yeah but i also think that the amount you would miss out on by stopping a rep or two shy is way less than the people pushing the idea that going to failure is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think the uh, the amount you would miss out on is way, way smaller than the current discourse would suggest yeah. that it is. Yeah. Um and there are, and there yeah. are reasons that you might not want to train to failure. Yeah. Like I, I know when you've talked about this in the past, um, it's been like you know, maybe you get a little bit extra of going all the way to failure, but maybe if you're taking every set until you you have maybe two reps still in the tank, so like it's pretty hard there at the end, but like you're not going all the way to failure, mm-hmm. that you're going to be able to recover from that a little bit better. Yeah, so that was the second part of the question. Yeah. Um, and that is a good segue. And um, 
Yeah, like I, I, I have been on the tip that like training to failure is more fatiguing, stopping shy. But but I do think kind of now switching which side of the argument I'm on here. Mm-hmm. I do think that that has been largely overblown. Okay. Um, like like this is uh j- just to give people a bit of a peek behind the veil. Um, this was a topic we we wrote about at Mass quite a few times while I was there. Right. And that's why I know things about it. Yeah. <laughs> just and, reading mass articles. Well, and so like during our review process, like I oftentimes wasn't the one reviewing those studies, but I was giving like feedback yeah. on uh on the articles that were written. Mm-hmm. And so like most of the research that people would cite to say it is like super fatiguing and super hard to recover if you train from failure. Virtually all of those studies do just have people doing a single bout of exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, like it's a crossover study. Some of them use independent groups. Some some are crossover <laughs> studies. But essentially, you either have two groups and like maybe one does a workout four reps from failure and the other goes to failure. Or you have like a single group and half of them do training to failure and the other half does four reps from failure and then you switch and the people that did four reps from failure go to failure. The people that went to failure go four reps to failure. Like... It's one it's one of those two experimental models, but uh, it does only involve people training to failure in one session. Yeah. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And I have always made the argument, um, like like going back and forth with with the lads in the review process, mm-hmm. like, hey, like this is an acute study, and like I think people adapt over time. Like I don't I mm-hmm. think I think that 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 research overestimates the real world recovery implications of training closer to failure because right. you do it once, you do it twice, you do it three times and like it's it's just not going to cause as much residual fatigue and muscle damage the third time as it did the first time. Yeah. Um and so yeah, like I I have been of that perspective for a while and in fact, uh up top at the start of the show, I alluded to one of one of my old mass articles that would be linked in the show notes, and this is where that comes in. Uh, so my article was titled, Does Eccentric Training Always Cause More Muscle Damage? And the study that it was reviewing is titled, Eccentric Exercise Per Se Does Not Affect Muscle Damage Biomarkers, colon, Early and Late Phase Adaptations. Um, so bo- both of those things will be linked in the show notes. And so like this was... Um, this was not a proximity to failure experimental model. Like it wasn't looking at training two reps from failure versus two failure or whatever. Um, but I think if anything, it's an even better experimental model just for probing the degree to which the repeated bout effect and kind of protective adaptations in the muscles can uh, occur over time and like protect you from muscle damage. In, in a way that I think generalizes to other models as well. So essentially in this study, they used um, they used untrained subjects and they had uh, they had folks either do uh, maximum like maximal concentric or eccentric reps once per week for 10 weeks. And so like concentric, that's kind of the lifting phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and eccentric is the lowering phase. Mm-hmm. And eccentric stress, eccentric strain is what causes most muscle damage. Like it, it's inherently more damaging than, than concentric training. And the experimental model itself, five sets of 15 maximal eccentrics 
at a velocity of 60 degrees per second. So that's like a relatively slow velocity, which like you can produce more force at faster velocities with eccentrics, but you can produce more force eccentrically than concentrically anyways. And like th mm. that, that is a velocity where you'll be able to produce a ton of force like that, that the experimental model they used would be more fatiguing than doing five sets of 15, like quote unquote, normal reps to failure. Like that's, that's a fucking brutal protocol. Yes. And uh, yeah, they only did it once per week for 10 weeks. So they were essentially observing the protective effects of only doing 10 workouts. So we're not, we're not even talking about people who've been training for years and years, like training the same muscle group three times a week or whatever. And they still found that after 10 weeks of training, five sets of 15 maximal eccentrics, um, there were no longer any discernible indications of muscle damage based on um, like a bunch of different outcomes. So like blood biomarkers, they looked at creatine kinase and C-reactive protein. Uh, they looked at functional data. So uh, maximal eccentric, concentric, and isometric torque, uh, like the day after, two days after, three days after the workout, and uh, perceptual data as well. So delayed onset muscle soreness and pain-free range of motion. Um, like they found like 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 small to nil changes in all of those markers by week ten, and no difference between the eccentric and concentric training by week ten, and so like I don't know I think that generalizes to training to failure like I think if I think if you do it for one session and you're used to training with five reps in reserve, going to failure is going to beat the shit out of you and mm -hmm. it's going to be hard to recover from. But I think by like your fourth or fifth week doing it, um, there's not going to be nearly as much of an elevated recovery burden as you expect that there would be. Interesting. Um, all of which is to say, like I just just as, as an observer of some of the discourse around this topic, <laughs> I think that the hypertrophic benefits of training to failure are often overstated. Uh huh. But I also think that the recovery drawbacks of training to failure are also very consistently overstated. Like I I don't think I don't think you get that much more out of going to failure versus stopping one, two, three reps shy. Yeah. But I also don't think training to failure is inherently that much more fatiguing than stopping one, two, three reps shy. Like it might be for a single session you do today if you're not already adapted to training to failure. Mm -hmm. But after you take three, four, five weeks to adapt to training to failure, going to failure is not going to cause much, if any, more fatigue than stopping a few reps shy. That's okay. that's kind of my like like and, and like I do think there is probably still on net a recovery difference, but like yeah, I think it's probably relatively small. Like I I think that um, the the ideas people have about it are mostly driven by those acute studies where mm -hmm. people only train to failure once, and I think that those do like pretty significantly overestimate um, kind of the ongoing recovery burden of going to failure versus stopping shy. All right. Uh, question number five, our last one for the episode. Hey, you two. Here's my question. What exactly is CrossFit good for besides training you to be better at CrossFit? I do CrossFit, and so I'm not here to dunk on them. But I also have an interest in other sports and, as you know, lifting as well as other more sort of endurance or cardio-based efforts. 
And I'm not sure CrossFit helps me get better at any of them. That's not necessarily why I do it. I like the community, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm curious what that style of training does for someone, if anything. Yeah, so just as a bit of framing for the claims and kind of like the chatter about what people say the benefits of CrossFit are, um, I found a systematic review called The Benefits and Risks of CrossFit that included 13 studies that examined uh, the safety and health benefits of CrossFit. Uh, Some of those studies showed that CrossFit training can be effective for improving endurance, um, increasing maximal aerobic capacity and VO2 max, and increasing aerobic and anaerobic capacity. Um, They also found that it can have a positive influence on participants' body composition, though they noted that that could be due to nutrition changes because a lot of people who do CrossFit also do paleo. Um, And a positive influence on strength, flexibility, power, and balance, and then some other body composition-related stuff, BMI, fat mass, and waist circumference. Um, besides the positive physical effects of CrossFit, they they mentioned um, the thing that the listener mentioned about like community. So effects on mood state and social aspects were examined and found. Among other things, it's been shown that CrossFit training has a positive influence on motivational factors and the sense of community. And so, yeah, that's I, I just wanted to provide that as framing for kind of like this one systematic review on CrossFit. Um, Greg, what do you think? Yeah, I think that that is all correct. Um, but much much like my answer to the question about kind of minimalist training, um, I think it's, it's just going to depend really heavily on your training status mm-hmm. and how good you're trying to get at other like specific pursuits. And also, quite frankly, just how you conceptualize of CrossFit. Like, what do you define to be CrossFit? Um and so, yeah, like starting starting at the end, like what do you define to be CrossFit? Um, as far as I can tell, like competitive CrossFitters, the way that it's that it's functionally defined for them is just like strength and conditioning, like the same sorts of things that you might do for like a college or professional athlete training yeah. for a specific sport. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's going to be like powerlifting style training to improve like one rep max bench squat deadlift because like yeah the games i think they've done like a three rep max front squat i think they've done a one rep max deadlift they do like really heavy snatches and cleans from time to time um and so like if you're trying to be a competitive crossfitter a lot of your like quote-unquote crossfit training is just going to be powerlifting or is just going to be weightlifting. weightlifting yeah um and for a lot of the more kind of like endurance focused events that you might do in a CrossFit competition, folks who are like competitive CrossFitters, they're going to do a lot of training that looks like a competitive swimmer or a competitive runner. Um, And so, yeah, you could just say like, hey, that's just kind of standard endurance training. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing it for the purpose of getting better at CrossFit, you could say, oh, that's CrossFit training. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, essentially, if you take like the maximally wide definition of what crossfit training could right. be right and you're just saying what are the benefits of strength training and endurance yeah. training then, then it's yeah. then it's great at everything yeah uh, and, and like those are just ex- like they're also going to do like skill work for like gymnastic style yeah. movements they do like what but yeah like you could define crossfit training as like all all forms of physical training that someone could do 
<laughs> because a lot of shit might show up in a CrossFit yeah, competition. Yeah, a lot of benefits of a lot um, of shit. Yeah, and so like if you were to define CrossFit that way, mm-hmm. the answer is like, oh yeah, it's great for everything. Right. Um, <laughs> if you were to define it more narrowly as going to your local box and and doing the wads that your coach takes you through, mm-hmm. um, then I think the the systematic review that you alluded to um, is going to be quite a bit more informative. Uh, but like I mentioned, I think it's also going to depend really heavily on your training status and how good you're trying to get at particular things. So like I haven't dug into all 13 of the studies referenced in that systematic review, but I'm going to assume pretty strongly that most of the subjects in those studies were either brand new CrossFitters or people who'd been doing it for maybe like a year or two tops. Right. Um, And I mean, ultimately, if you're trying to get in just like decently good shape, like you're trying to increase your VO2 max, you're trying to improve your body comp you're trying to get stronger and and you're starting from square one crossfit's going to be good at all of those things Mm -hmm. like it has you do some like kind of heavy lifting it has you doing uh like their met cons like plenty of aerobic anaerobic conditioning like there's it's it's going to get you to a pretty good place in a lot of different kind of measurable physical characteristics right but then if you've maybe been doing CrossFit for four or five years already and you're doing your wads, but your numbers on strength lifts aren't going up, mm-hmm. your performance on some of the more like endurance-based wads aren't really going up. Um, yeah, like you've probably reached the point where just like showing up at the box and doing your wads really isn't doing too much for you anymore. Right, other than just like baby maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. And so like if you do want to continue improving your endurance, you will probably need to kind of step out, like maybe skip a wad or two, or maybe on top of the wads you're already doing, if you're recovering from them pretty well, like do some actual endurance training. Mm-hmm. Like do do some like eight hundred repeats. Do like an hour and a half of like zone two cardio. Like mm-hmm. the like more stuff like that. If your strength numbers are plateauing, maybe skip a wad or two, maybe in addition to the wads if you're recovering well. Um, you know, stick around after class or get a membership to a more standard gym and like do some heavy like powerlifting style or weightlifting style training. Mm-hmm. Um like once you reach a a once you reach the level of development past which just doing CrossFit isn't causing improvements anymore, like you will probably need to do some more specific training mm-hmm. which Again, if you define CrossFit as broadly as possible, guess what? You're still doing CrossFit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, so... So it sounds like for this listener, if if she's already lifting and doing more endurance and cardio-based stuff separately from CrossFit and has been doing CrossFit for a while, yeah. she's probably not getting a ton of benefit from CrossFit, just as she suspected. I mean, my assumption is probably no, but... I mean, the easiest way to answer that question is just test it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- whatever strength pursuits you're the most interested in. Like, l- like let's just say that your your main strength-related goal is to get the biggest squat possible. Just, like, come, come before a wad one day, like, if there's a rack open, or just, like, get a day pass at another gym, and just, like, hit a one-rep max squat. Mm-hmm. And then just, like, show up to your wads for three months, test your squat again. Did it go up? If so, guess what? CrossFit's still working. Like it is still helping <laughs> yeah. you get stronger. If not, or like if it's barely changed, then uh, yeah, it's probably not doing it for you. Yeah. And and similar type of deal. Like go out, run a five k, run a ten k, test your time, 
do your wads for three months, run a 5K or 10K again, did your time improve? If so, CrossFit is probably still helping your endurance. If not, it's probably not, and you probably need to do some more specific endurance training. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, like like based on the tone of the question, I suspect that they're already there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not sure, like I said, it's it's it, it will take a bit of time. Like it'll take it'll take a couple months to get kind of a valid test retest. But um, that's it, it's an easy enough thing to test for yourself. And yeah. based on the outcome of that test, you may say, hey, CrossFit's still good. Like it's still helping me get stronger, still helping me improve my endurance. Or you might say, hey, I need to do some more specific endurance training or specific strength training or both. Mm -hmm. Now, something we didn't mention is like mobility stuff. And that was one of the things that was mentioned in the systematic review. It could be that doing CrossFit on top of those things could be helping with like flexibility and mobility. Could be. Um, Just going through a different range of exercises. And from what I understand, like from what I've seen about CrossFit, like they do emphasize like mobility quite a bit um that could be helping yeah i i i I think they emphasize mobility quite a bit just because like weightlifting variants factor in pretty strongly and like you 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 take the average american off the street and have them do a snatch they're not going to be able to do a snatch no um so yeah i i think a lot i think a lot of it is done with weightlifting in mind uh, so if, if the questioner is saying like, hey, I'm trying to get stronger, but what they have in mind is weightlifting, like their weightlifting training is probably giving them the mobility benefits That's that like true. the CrossFit stuff right. would. Right. Um, I will say just in a general sense, like I do think, I don't know, like in some circles it is, it, it is fashionable to shit on CrossFit. Mm-hmm. And I do think that, like, especially several years back, like, I, I think the median CrossFit gym and, like, the median CrossFit coach is way better than they were in, like, 2014 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, there there did used to be kind of a, a glorification of, like, pain and injury. Like, yeah. uh, uh, Pukey the Clown, Uncle Rabdo, um, <laughs> like, fo- folks just, like, absolutely fucking mangling their hands on like really like high rep pull-up workouts and then be like oh <sighs> hey i ripped 40 percent of the skin off my hand aren't i cool it's like no like you're functionally crippled for the next few weeks like we we're bipedal so we can have access to the to these two limbs and we have these nice opposable th- like that's yeah, don't fuck it that's up. not a good thing um, so yeah, like there, there was, I, I think there used to be much more of that kind of ethos than there is now. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, like it, it did, I think at some boxes used to be a problem of taking people who really weren't ready to like really push themselves <laughs> yeah. and just like doing dumb shit, like giving yeah. people rhabdo, getting them like injured, like musculoskeletal injuries, like major overuse injuries. I think that there's a lot less of that now. Mm-hmm. I think most CrossFit is like pretty decent, just kind of like general strength and conditioning. And so I think that if you're if you're an athlete in just like pretty much any sport and you're like, hey, I you know, like I, I'm I'm putting most of my stat points into this thing. Like I'm trying to get as strong as possible, but like I don't want to let myself get into like piss poor shape or like yeah. let my uh, mobility or coordination, like really go to shit. Mm-hmm. I do, I do kind of think as kind of a set it and forget it, not need to think about it too hard, just kind of like 
baseline general physical training program to still be pretty good at a lot of things, I think you could do a lot worse than joining a CrossFit box and doing like two or three wads a week. Like Mm -hmm. I I do, I do think that that would probably be like net beneficial for most people, but it's probably also not going to get you to qualify for the Boston marathon or hit a world record in powerlifting. Like for more specific athletic pursuits, you will at some point need to do more specific training. All right, that uh, that wraps up this episode of the podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. You could be listening to anything else right now, but you chose to listen to us, and that means the world to me. And Lindsay's not chiming in. It she, also she, means the world to me. She thinks it's fine. Um, I'm honored. It's a privilege to be in your ears. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have questions that you would like us to address in a future Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast, record those voice clips, email them to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. And until the next episode, uh, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you have a great day.